Good morning, Life Fellowship. My name is Andy Barker. I'm one of the elders here at Life, and I occasionally am given the opportunity to preach, and it is a privilege that is preceded by much prayer. And so with that in mind, would you please start by praying with me? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you have shown yourself to us in your word. And I pray that in the time that we have ahead dedicated to the opening of your word, that you would use it to open our hearts to the greatness of your heart for us that desires for us to be in fellowship with you. Show us the greatness of this truth and make our hearts sing at the truth of who you are and your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple of years ago, my family and I had the opportunity to take us an extended trip out west. Uh, the seven of us packed into a rented RV and tried to hit as many national parks as we could. We made it to Badlands, Yellowstone, Grand Teton, Arches, Zion, Canyonlands, and the Grand Canyon. We saw rivers and lakes and waterfalls, and geysers, and hot springs, and mountains, and canyons, and geological formations unlike anything we had ever seen. But nothing compares to what we saw on the way home. As we made our way home on 40 through Tennessee, we stopped at the unnatural wonder of the world known as Bucky's. <laughs> if you've never been to Bucky's, it's just a gas station. But if you've been to Bucky's, you know that it is not just a gas station. This particular one had over 100 gas pumps, and it had a 50,000-plus square foot store. And when I walked in, there was someone taking a selfie, there was someone taking a video, and I just had this overwhelming sense of, where am I? But as I was out filling up at the pump, I was struck by the seemingly endless sea of cars, all coming and going, constant stream, all fueling up so that it could go on their way. And thinking back to the trip that we took, that is kind of like what we did each morning in the national parks. We would have a big breakfast in order to fuel up for the day of hiking and adventure that we had ahead of us. Like our RV needed to be fueled up to take us where we wanted it to go, we needed to fill our bodies up with the fuel of food to propel us on our adventure. But the comparison between an RV's gas in our food, and there. Our eating is about so much more than food. Our food is for fellowship. Over the course of that trip, a unique thing happened whenever we came together for a meal. It, we were always together. Always together. But when we came down to together for a meal, it was different. We were stopped we were seated, we were facing each other, we were available to each other for connection and for conversation. Sometimes we sat in silence, sometimes we argued, sometimes we just shoved our, foods, our face with foods because we needed to, to be on our way. But in general, the meals over that trip were the constant that kept us together over 21 days. And this is by God's design. God created us for food. He also created us for fellowship. 
And he has created in the fabric of our existence the bringing together of these two things at meals. And what I want for us to see today is that this thing that God has made, food and fellowship coming together at meals, is something that God himself uses to show us his heart for us to be in fellowship with him. I want for you to know this thought in your heart. Eating is for fellowship. And God's heart for us to be in fellowship with him is shown in his coming to eat with us. We will see this by looking at three meals in the Bible. A meal with God in the Old Testament, a meal with God in Jesus' ministry, and a meal with God at Jesus' return. So why all this talk about meals and eating? As was mentioned, we're in the middle of our Blessed by Jesus series. Bless is an acronym, stands for Begin with Prayer, Listen, Eat, Serve, and Share the Gospel. Bless is a strategy that we hope that you will adopt as a way for us to, to move towards our vision that every man, woman, and child on Lake Norman and beyond will have the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. We want to take seriously our role as ambassadors and representatives for Jesus and shine his light to those that God has brought near to us. But this series is not about tips and tricks for implementing the blessed strategy. This series is blessed by Jesus. Those five things, B-L-E-S-S, are present in Jesus' ministry. And what he did brought the blessing of God to us. We are blessed by Jesus. And the hope is that our hearts will be full with the knowledge of how we have been blessed by what Jesus has done for us so that it would overflow into us desiring to bless others in the same way. We'll look to this morning to see how Jesus blesses us by eating with us. And so we'll look at those three meals, but first I want us to turn from, to Matthew chapter 11 to see the deeper meaning of meals that I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 11, please turn with me there if you can. So at the beginning part of this chapter in Matthew 11, Jesus has the opportunity to talk about his own ministry. And in doing so, he makes five different references to five passages in Isaiah that his ministry is fulfilling. And then he turns and speaks briefly about John the Baptist's ministry. And in speaking about him, he references two passages from Malachi that are fulfilled in John the Baptist. So with that backdrop, follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 6. It says this, sorry, 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So the idea here is that in what I said about all that Jesus said about Jesus and John, what was prophesied hundred of years before is now being fulfilled at this time. You would think 
that the reception of that would be, what a great time to be alive. Prophecy is being fulfilled right before our eyes. But instead, it says, but this generation did not receive John in Jesus. John was beheaded. Jesus was crucified. They rejected them. And Jesus points to their rejection of them. Their ministries were very different. And a a complaint was made about each. And Jesus characterizes it as the stubborn unwillingness of children to play with their playmates. But what's of interest for us this morning is that in this, in that context of all the things that Jesus could have said to, to talk about the difference between John and himself, he chose eating. Eating is a reflection of Jesus' ministry. And so I want you to see that I'm not adding meaning to fit with this banner behind me. The Bible itself is showing us that Jesus' eating is about so much more than just taking in food. It is about fellowship. Eating is for fellowship. And God's heart for us is shown in his coming to eat with us. So let's turn now to look at a meal with God in the Old Testament. So turn all the way back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24 is roughly in the middle of the book of Exodus. And so what came before this chapter is God's miraculous deliverance of his people out of slavery in Egypt in preparation for bringing them into their own land in Israel. God brought them out, and they are now in this scene um, set at the foot of Mount Sinai. God has given his commandments, and the people have said, we will do all that you've said, and a covenant is formed. That's what comes before chapter 24. What comes immediately after is that Moses goes back up the mountain to receive detailed instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And it says that the tabernacle is to be built so that... God may dwell in the midst of his people. So this is sort of a a pivotal moment in the book where a covenant has been formed and they're about to prepare to make the tabernacle so that God may dwell with them. And in this chapter, this is what we read. This is Exodus 24, starting in verse 9. It says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men and the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now that is a weird passage. I bet many of you have read Exodus 24 and you've never even noticed. You heard me read that as if it was the first time you heard it. It's a bizarre little three verses. And it's so weird we don't know what to do with it. We might just read right past it and not notice what's happening here. But I would say the weirdness of it is what invites us into it to say what's happening. And in it we see attention. And we can see that in two descriptions that are given of God. First is his feet. Look at what it says in verse 10. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. Somehow, the invisible God has made himself visible. 
And the only description given is what is below his feet. So the the idea here is that they know he's there, but they don't even look up. All they see is what's beneath his feet. And then the second description or mention of him is his hand. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. All throughout this section, there are warnings about who can come and when and where under threat of death because of the nearness of the presence of God. And here the leaders of Israel are in the presence of God and they're afraid. God is there. He is near and the people are in fear because of it. He did not raise his hand. Yet it says, they beheld God and ate and drank. So the question I have is why bother? If there's going to be so much difficulty with God being in the presence of his people, why bother? Why not just stay back and let them have their meal? I would say that God is communicating something very important at this pivotal moment in Israel's history. God is saying to his people, I did not rescue you out of Egypt to bring you into your own land so that you can have live your best life apart from me. God is saying, my heart, my desire, my aim, my purpose for rescuing you out of Egypt and bringing you to a land of your own is so that you will know that your best life is lived when it is lived in fellowship with me. And he shows that by inviting them to a meal. Because eating is about so much more than eating. Eating is for fellowship, and God's heart is shown here. His desire for us to be in fellowship with him is shown in how he comes to eat with the leaders of Israel. This whole scene kind of reminds me of an experience I had at work. Um, A group of us were invited to a breakfast with a senior leader. And the idea was, it was an open forum. We could come and we could talk about whatever we wanted. There was no agenda. It was just whatever we were thinking, and we could have a casual conversation with the senior leader at the table. And so, a group of us ascended the mountaintop of the corporate center in uptown Charlotte. And we were from, on the second to last floor in the corporate center. And the ele- we, to get there, we had to go through two layers of security, and then the, the elevators opened, to an open floor plan, ornately decorated with expansive views of all of Charlotte, we entered into this huge conference room with a a beautiful wood table surrounded by lovely leather chairs with place settings with multiple forks and multiple plates, an entire waitstaff serving us a full breakfast. Talk about whatever you want. The idea was an open forum, but the setting of it was so intimidating that it didn't invite freeness of conversation. The poor girl sitting next to me was only a couple of years out of college. She was so intimidated that she was eating her bacon with a fork and a knife. (laughs) So in that scene, you can see what I'm describing. There's tension, right? There's the desire for open conversation, but an intimidating setting that makes it so that there's no open conversation happening. We are strictly on the... the, uh, Toe in the company line in that conversation. That tension 
is what we see in Exodus chapter 24. God is there, but the people are in fear. You see God's heart for fellowship with his people, but you see the tension in that God is holy and we are sinful and we are not fit for that fellowship. God wants for us to be in fellowship with him, but we cannot experience that in fullness because of his holiness and our sinfulness. And that is where Jesus steps in. Jesus is God himself. Jesus entered into our world as one of us in order to remove the barrier that keeps us from experiencing the fullness of fellowship that God desires for us. And we will start to see that as we look at a meal with God in Jesus' ministry. So let's turn now to Matthew 9. We're back in the Gospel of Matthew, this time in chapter 9. Let's turn to Matthew 9 for a meal with God in Jesus' ministry. So follow along as I read, starting in verse 9. It says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, What does your teacher, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so I mentioned that Jesus entered in to solve the tension that we saw in Exodus 24. But in this passage, you still see that tension. You see it in two ways. First of all, you see it in Matthew's use of the word, behold. This is Matthew's gospel. Matthew wrote what I just read. Matthew is the one at the tax booth that Jesus said, follow me to. It is at Matthew's house that Jesus came to eat. It was Matthew's friends that were invited to this meal with Jesus. And he says, behold. Mark and Luke have this account, but they don't say behold. This is personal for Matthew. And he says, stop, listen, pay attention. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew sees that this ought not be. And for him, he sees the beauty of Jesus who came and is having fellowship with him and his friends. The other people that see the tension are the Pharisees, and for them, it's a criticism They complain, not to Jesus, but to his disciples, saying, why does your teacher eat with those people? What Matthew saw as beautiful, the Pharisees saw as ugly. And when Jesus responds, we see that there is no tension in Jesus. He is exactly where he wants to be. He knows what he's doing, and he's committed to doing it. There is no tension in Jesus. He responds in three ways, all saying one thing. First, he says, those who are well 
have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. This is likely a proverb that would have been well known to the people that heard that. Jesus equates himself with a physician who has come for healing, and naturally he goes to those that need healing, the sick. Next, he cuts closer to the heart by saying to these Pharisees, these experts in the law, go and learn what this means. And he quotes Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is saying, what I'm doing is a reflection of God's heart for mercy. God desires what I am doing. I am aligned to him. Your focus on the external observation of commandments and traditions is missing God's heart. I am where I was meant to be with Matthew and his friends. And then lastly, he says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's a mission statement. Jesus is summing up his entire mission. He says, I came to call the righteous, not sinners. Isn't it interesting that the context out of which Jesus makes this big statement is a meal? Our eating is about so much more than just eating. So in this scene, the Pharisees had it in their their mind that in order for Jesus to be a good religious leader, he needed to know that there are certain kinds of people that he should be with, the righteous, and other kinds of people that he should avoid, the tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus could have responded by correcting the error of their thinking. And I think that's what I would have done. All are sinners in need of saving. Instead, Jesus does something different. Jesus takes their erroneous way of looking at the world and he leverages their separation of people into those who are in and those who are out and he flips it on its head. Jesus says that if the Pharisees were to put everyone into two groups, the righteous and sinners, it is the sinners that Jesus will go to. Like the country doctor who would only come to a home, who would come to a home because of sickness, or like a mother who was propelled toward her child because he scraped his knee. Jesus comes to us because of our sin. This is the shocking good news of the gospel. The Pharisees were right to separate the world into two groups of people, but they labeled them wrong. There are sinners who see their sin and see their need for Jesus. And when he calls them to healing and mercy, they receive him gladly like Matthew into his house. Behold, Jesus came even to me. Then the other group is also sinners, but those who do not see their sin or they don't see their need for Jesus. And like the Pharisees, they cut themselves off from the call of Jesus to receive the healing and mercy that he offers. I think all of you will be happy to know that in my family, we do it right. There is no Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. So that means that over this past week, when I came home from work, I could hear Andy Williams singing in my house 
It's the most wonderful time of the year. This is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. Thanksgiving was just a week and a half ago. Christmas is just a little bit more than three weeks away. This is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. But this week I learned of many things in our fellowship that show that for many among us, this has been the most terrible time of the year. There was the unexpected and tragic loss of a loved one. There was a a hospitalization that led to surprising, hard news from the doctors. And there's a prolonged hospitalization that has gone from bad to worse. And with Thanksgiving being so, so, so uh, close, there's still the pain of those who had hoped for fun and food and fellowship over a meal of what Thanksgiving is supposed to be, but instead it was heartache and arguing and tension and anxiety over what it's going to be for Christmas. What do you do when the weight of the sorrows of this world are pressing in on you. What I'm talking about this morning is not a happy thought to distract us from the reality of the sorrows of the world. What I'm talking to you about is the hope-filled reality that calls us in the midst of our sorrows to look up and see the God who has the only solution for the sorrows of this world, where he will completely eliminate them for eternity. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And many of us know that trouble. But then he said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. And Jesus stood and said, he called out, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The call is to all. The only requirement to come is that you are weary and burdened and that you want the rest that he provides. All can come. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how far from God you feel that you are, Jesus is the one who came to us. And he went to the lowest of people. The ones that the religious said you shouldn't be with them. And Jesus said, this is why I came. He came for us in our sorrows to bring us to the place where sorrow is gone. And we see that when we look now to a meal with God at Jesus' return. In order to see that, we're actually going to go backwards. We're going to go back to the passage that Jan read for us this morning. This is Isaiah 25. This is a prophecy from hundreds of years before Jesus that's talking about something that will come in the future. Please turn with me to Isaiah 25 and follow along as I read starting in verse 6. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So not that long ago, I was, I was watching a documentary on the band U2. It's called, a Bono, it's called Bono and the Edge, A Sword of Homecoming. It's available on Disney+. And in that documentary, Bono was talking about the well-known song, Where the Streets Have No Name. And this is what he said about it. He said, where the streets have no name is an unusual brew of a song. The lyric is not very fleshed out, but the suggestion contained in the lyric is gigantic. And what it seems to suggest is this. There's a transcendent place we can go to together. Do you want to come? And here's the opening lyrics to that song. I want to run I want to hide. I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. I want to reach out and touch the flame where the streets have no name. What does that mean? That's that's Bono's point. You can't really figure out what exactly he's saying in those words. But if you know the song, if you listen to the song, you know what he means. It creates this longing in you for something that is beyond description. I find that very instructive and helpful for how to think about what I just read in Isaiah 25. Isaiah is describing the indescribable. How do you describe something that cannot be described? What you do is you take what is known and you push it to its boundaries in your description in order to invite the imagination to consider what lies beyond that in the incomprehensible. And so when we look at Isaiah 25, we see that it's on a mountain, which speaks to nearness to God and occasion for worship. It speaks of a feast, of rich food, of well-aged wine. This is about fellowship. This is about celebration, about an event that is worthy of the finest celebration beyond anything you've ever experienced. And then it says that he will swallow up death forever. Speaking to the bigness of what God has accomplished in his salvation. And then the very next line says, And he will wipe away tears from all faces. Speaking to the nearness of his application of that salvation. The picture is of him holding faces individually looking in the eyes, saying, no more, no more. Now, if we tried to figure all of that out, tried to find all the details and picture and map it all out, we would miss the point. And the point of this passage is given to us in in verse 9, where it says, This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation." The purpose of this feast is for gladness and rejoicing. God comes so that we can have fellowship with Him and know the joy and the fullness of fellowship with Him forever. 
It is for your joy that Jesus has come to bring you into fellowship with God. And now we can look and see how Jesus did that. Turn with me, please, in Revelation 19. Here we see a a sight of what Isaiah talked about, but with further details from what John saw. Follow along with me in Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is the same feast that we read about in Isaiah 25, but here it becomes clear that all of it is focused and accomplished in Jesus. Jesus is the lamb who was slain for our sins. And the feast that Isaiah talked about is a wedding where Jesus is the groom and we, his people, are the bride. Think of that. Where we began was Exodus 24, where the people could not even look at God made visible. And now, fast forward to where we are all headed, who are in Christ, and the the description of it is no longer tension and fear, but described as the closest relationship that we have as humans, husband and wife, Christ and his bride. The fullness of fellowship because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And it is all envisioned before us as a feast, symbolizing the gladness and rejoicing that God's heart wants for us to have by being brought into fellowship with him. Look with me at verse 9. It says, the angel said to him, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That feast is a marriage feast, and we're invited. And I got to say this, it says, blessed are those who are invited. We are blessed by Jesus. Now, this can be a lot to take in. It's going to be a lot to grasp. This can feel like a far-off thought that really doesn't hit home. Just a nice idea. doesn't really feel like it hits me where I'm actually living. One thing that helps me bridge the gap between big thoughts and the reality of experiencing that truth is music. So I love to talk about theology. I love to read. I love to study, talk with others, share ideas about the big truths of God's word and the bigness of God himself. But there's, what I love about music is that music is a gift from God, which when wielded well, comes alongside a truth and allows you to see it with different eyes. Instead of it just being a thought, the truth becomes something that you feel and experience differently. That is God's design. 
There have been many songs that have helped me connect a big truth to the, to the joy and gladness that God intends for us in that truth. And so one such song for me has been a song by the artist Leland called Carried to the Table, which is on this topic. It speaks about how we are invited to the table of God and what a privilege that is. Now, I love the song. It's, it's, it's from a while ago, and, and, and I enjoyed the song. It made my heart full whenever I would listen to it, and I thought I got it. But then I, I had the opportunity to go to a Leland concert where he explained the, his inspiration for the writing of the song. And it was so impactful for me that I want to share it with you. So the context for this song, Carried to the Table, is the story of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is a character that you see throughout the narrative of 2 Samuel. Um, Saul was the first king of Israel. His son was Jonathan. And Jonathan had a son, Mephibosheth. David was the second king of Israel. And for most of Saul's reign, he was trying to kill David. And David happened to be best friends with his son, Jonathan. Saul's reign came to an end when he and Jonathan died in battle together. When news of that came, Mephibosheth was only five years old. And his nurse wanted to rescue him, protect him, keep him safe in light of what was happening. She scooped him up to to run to safety. And as she went, she tripped. And Mephibosheth fell. And it says he was crippled in his feet for the rest of his life. When you fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 9, there's this moment where David is now king. And he says, I want to show the kindness of God to the house of Saul. Who's left? And Mephibosheth is the only one left in Saul's house. So David calls for Mephibosheth to come to his court. Now for Mephibosheth, this is not good news. It would be common for a king to wipe out the family of the former king in order to protect his crown. So when the king calls you and your grandfather was the former king, you don't come happily. You come in fear. And on account of his condition, he also knows he's unfit for the king. As a a person who is crippled in his feet, he knows he is broken. He is not fit to be with the king. And he's ashamed of his condition. But he comes because when the king calls you, you come. And when he comes, this is what David says to him. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you shall eat at my table always. Ten chapters later in 2 Samuel 19, Mephibosheth shares his reflection on this experience. This is what Mephibosheth said about what David had done. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you have set your servant among those who eat at your table. Now in the imagery of the song, The idea is that Mephibosheth is invited to the table, but because of the crippledness in his feet, he cannot bring himself to the table. And so he needs to be carried. 
And Mephibosheth knows that he does not deserve to be at that table because of his family and because of his brokenness and because of his shame. But when he's carried to the table, he is seated with everyone else and the table covers his brokenness. It is now under the table and he is free to fellowship with everyone there with his brokenness covered by the king. These are the lyrics of the chorus from that song. It says, I'm carried to the table, seated where I don't belong. And I don't see my brokenness anymore when I'm seated at the table of the Lord. I hope you can see that that is clearly referencing the story of Mephibosheth. But more than that, those words are about us. In our sin, we are enemies of God. In our sin, we are unfit for nearness to God. In our sin, we are ashamed to know that we cannot come before Him and have fullness of fellowship. Yet, we are invited, invited to come. Eating is for fellowship. And God's heart for us to be in fellowship with Him is shown in His coming to eat with us. So what are we to do with all of this? Well, first and foremost, I want for our hearts to be full at the knowledge of how we are blessed by Jesus, which is shown in how God has come, Jesus has come, to eat with us, to bring us into fellowship with himself. Let that truth fill your heart and let gladness and rejoicing be your response. And out of the overflow of that, let us be a people who have tasted the goodness of God and desire to be a light to others that they might know it too. To bless as we have been blessed. Now when we invite people to eat with us, we're not inviting them to the honor of having fellowship with us. It's not about us. But we are creating an occasion for a deepening of relationship that allows for a connection where we can point others to the joy of what we, we have received in being blessed by Jesus. So I would say, eat with your family. We have not emphasized this enough. Bless is not only about outside the home. Bless must begin in our homes. We can begin with prayer, listen, eat, serve, and share the gospel with those we love the most, our kids, our spouses, our family. Bless begins in the home. Make it a priority to eat with your family. You may not be able to do it every day, but you can do it some of the days. Prioritize that in your home. And I promise you, you will regret it. I said that right. You will regret it. When you have your family at the table, there will be times when you're like, I wish they weren't here. You will be arguing. You'll be bickering. It'll be more difficult than it was when you all ate separately. But it is worth it. Over the long run, it will create opportunities for conversation and fellowship that you would not otherwise have. Prioritize eating with your family. Second, eat with friends. And I mean by that, fellow believers. Eat with the, 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 um, the people of this church that you know, those that you love and those that you want to grow to love. Use eating as a way to create fellowship. Discipleship is about much more than just studying the Bible. 
I can't tell you how much I've been influenced and affected just by being with other men who love God and that is shown in how they love their wives and love their kids and love their friends. It's not through any words they say, but it's the actions they live out that teach me something about what it looks like to be a man of God. And lastly, eat with neighbors. And I don't mean just the people that live next door to you or that work next door to you. I mean neighbors in the Good Samaritan sense where the people that God has brought into your life that has a need, seeking to be a light to them, ask them to go to lunch, to get, to get a coffee. Use eating to deepen that, that relationship, to, to invite different kinds of conversation that you might be able to point them to the kindness that we have received, the blessing that we have received in Jesus who came to eat with us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask that you would take what we have considered today and apply it to our hearts in a way that only your Holy Spirit can. Open up hearts to see what is beyond description and to feel the joy of knowing your heart towards us. May we not count ourselves out because we think we are not fit for you. Jesus makes all who come to him fit for you. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for the free gift of, of the gospel. And I pray that you would help us to receive it and those that know Jesus would be filled with joy at, at seeing and considering what it is that you have given us.